Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news, developments, and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. As part of our coverage of what is going on in Ukraine, we are very pleased today to be joined by General Philip Breedlove. General Breedlove served as the 17th Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, currently serves as the Distinguished Chair of the Frontier Europe Initiative at the Middle East Institute. General, you spent a considerable portion of your military career in Europe, both in the SACIR job and also in uh, the Air Force commanding job, preparing for Russia moving against Europe. And all of a sudden, after all that time, it's happened. What about the way this has unfolded surprises you? What doesn't surprise you? Well, David, just also to make it even more pointed, eight assignments in Europe from a captain flying an F-16 to commanding the Alliance. But I was the Supreme Allied Commander during the first invasion of Ukraine, when when Russia invaded uh, and occupied Crimea and then invaded, occupied, and handed off to their proxy forces in Donbass. So this is the second rodeo for me with Russia in Europe. What surprises me this time? Well, let's first say what doesn't surprise me this time. You know, Russia has made a habit in the past two decades of invading and occupying countries. The ones we talk the most about is 2008, when it invaded Georgia and occupied South Ossetia and Abkhazia and still remain in those countries today. And then in 14, of course, the first invasion and the second invasion of Ukraine, where they occupied Crimea, and then the Donbass. So it does not surprise me that we're not here now. I'm going to sound very critical. It's not political because it really points in a lot of directions, but 
my assertion is the West did not adequately address Russia's intransigence in 08. That's how we ended up in 14. There are other reasons as well, but that's clearly one of them. And then we didn't, again, didn't adequately address Russia's intransigence in 14. And so here we are again. And my assertion now is if we don't handle this one correctly, we'll be right back here again in a couple of years. If Mr. Putin finds a tool that works, he will use it until it doesn't work anymore. And what works with the West, invade, occupy, threaten, go back to business as usual. You just said these are the things that have not surprised you. What, what has surprised you? So what has surprised me here are, are uh, a couple of things. On the positive ledger, I think the Western world gave Ukraine little or no hope for standing in front of the Russian army. And uh, we were so focused. And, and actually, I was just over there two weeks ago, and President Zelensky told our very small group that the Western reporters and media are all focused on the wrong things. And we were all focused on the forces gathering because that's really chewy, good stuff to talk about in, in media and print. And uh, what we weren't watching is how Ukraine was steadily preparing for this. And so the first surprise is that the Ukrainian military has done a very good job of thwarting the Russian attack. Now, on the flip side of that very point, we're all a little bit surprised with the problems that the Russians are having invading. But make no mistake, mass will eventually overcome problem performance. And there's a lot of mass coming at Ukraine yet. And so that's going to be worrisome. I heard a great line. I don't know if this is the right way to where to say it, but the famous quote from Mike Tyson, where he says, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And so what we're seeing now is Russia's having to sort of regroup and regather because it didn't go as well as they thought going into Ukraine. Well, you know, the, the Russian plan seems to, and, and the mass that you refer to, seems to be gaining a little bit of traction now. We're kind of a week into this thing. Seems likely they're going to be able to claim a bunch of these cities. But of course, it raises a second question, which is, what do they do then? And when you talk about mass, there are 190,000 of them, but there are 45 million Ukrainians. And so keeping a lid on it seems to be a bigger problem than actually seizing the cities, doesn't it? I, I could not agree with you more. We're in violent agreement about that. But what I do believe is uh, if you watched Chechnya and Grozny, and if you watched eastern Syria, Russia has a particular way of handling problem adversaries and the rubbleizing, the indiscriminate bombing, the punishing bombing that they did in those two campaigns. I believe we already see beginning in Kharkiv. And if that is the future of what this conflict looks like, because it hasn't proceeded according to plan then that's going to be a really ugly future, unfortunately, for Ukraine and an ugly future for Europe. Whereas they have done this in the past in places like Grozny, the reality is those are much smaller places. And if, in fact, they feel compelled to rubbleize the cities of Ukraine, 
the human costs, the level of, of the war crimes that are going to be committed is going to be very high. And that raises a challenge because, you know, the United States and Europe have mounted what many concur has been a pretty effective response or at least a robust response in the sense of having put together an unprecedented sanctions package that really has teeth, having moved NATO forward, put it on alert, and having provided significant aid to Ukraine, including military aid. The problem is we've done that. And this thing might escalate in the way that you talk about. And Putin has recently rattled his nuclear saber a bit. And some of the options that people might have considered in a different situation with a country that didn't have 6,500 nuclear weapons, putting troops on the ground or no-fly zones and those kind of things, they don't seem to be options here. What do you do if this escalates? What does the West do or can the West do anything? So you asked about five questions. You're going to have to <laughs> you're going to have to help me <laughs> to answer all of them, because the first thing I want to do is uh, be a little contrarian when you talk about this unprecedented sanctions. So we sanctioned him after 08. Did that change his behavior? No. No, no. What it did do is punish Russia, punish the people, and punish the economy. But did it change Mr. Putin's behavior? The answer is no. So we sanctioned him mightily after 14, and it hurt Russia. It hurt the Russian people. It hurt the Russian economy. But did it change Mr. Putin's behavior? No. So now we have sanctioned him and threatened him with sanctions before the fight started. Did it deter him? No. So I think that history would tell us right now that sanctions so far are 0 for 3. Mighty Casey has taken three swings at the bat and it hasn't worked. And that's why I do believe we need to engender some new think about what we might do. Okay, remind me the second part of the question. Well, no, no. The second part of the question is new think. We've done sanctions. We've given them military aid. Right. And we've moved NATO forward. And and, so, and and so, you know, are there other ideas that are actually available options? So I believe that uh, I was contrary, but I believe we are doing a good job. And frankly, for the first time ever, I think that White House has actually fought an information campaign. The whole business of outing Russian actions through intelligence was actually, I think, a, a, a really good series of parry and thrust. And so I applaud that. You already know where I stand on sanctions. I hope they work. They will only work if the Russian people rise up. They're not going to work if you're waiting on Mr. Putin to capitulate because of sanctions. That, I'm telling you, will be 0 for 4 if you could get four swings at the ball on that, if that's what you're counting on. The other things, let me just throw a few things out. You, you mentioned the no-fly zone. I actually believe that possibly a humanitarian no-fly zone may be appropriate. And very soon when you have besieged cities and people getting hammered by indiscriminate shelling, we're going to need humanitarian quarters to get in there to try to save lives. Because Mr. Putin's not going to be worried about saving lives. He's going to do what he did in Grozny and what he did in eastern Syria. And then the question will be, how many Ukrainians have to die 
before the West does something? That will be the question. And so I believe there are variations. Humanitarian no-fly zone is a very different set of rules of engagement, and it does not call for offensive action unless fired upon by the imposing force, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I do not give up on these things that people are writing off right now. SWIFT was off the table until it came on the table, okay? No fly is off the table until it comes on the table. And I think that's, again, going to be a function of how many Ukrainians have to die before we do something. There's been some talk, and it sort of was on again, and, and then it's off again. And then today, Secretary Blinken was talking about it, and he's sounds like he's going to look into it again, of uh, EU states providing aircraft to the, the Ukrainians. And at one point, it was 70 fighter aircraft. and and then that deal seems to have disappeared. And uh, Blinken's, you know, is leaving shortly, and he, it looks like he's going to go and talk about it again. What do you think the prospect for that kind of support is? I hope it works. Not under the original construct that was proposed, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I think that deal was taken off the table by some very influential nations, and I'm going to leave it at that because I'm not going to be the source of that news. But the fact of the matter is, when it was proposed, it was proposed that we would give them these airplanes and they would actually fly out of Poland and be serviced and armed and gassed in Poland and going on missions. I'm not a fan of that because now you are literally Poland is injecting themselves into the war. But I am a fan. I am absolutely a fan of if these three nations want to give their aircraft to Ukraine. I'm sure there's some backside deal there. I don't know what that is. Not involved in that. But if these three nations give their aircraft to Ukraine, these are aircraft that can be rapidly assimilated into their air force because they're the frames that they're already flying. And if they give them to them and maybe give them spare parts to help them use them and then Poland gets out of it, then I think this is a wonderful idea. This is a way to help Ukraine to have almost nearly instant combat capability added to their force. And I'm for that. It's a bigger, more grand scheme of what nations are already doing when they're providing providing missiles and ammo and all other manner of things. It's just at a level that no one's ever done before. Right. And Turkish drones, too. It seems that that's been quite effective for the Ukrainians. Uh, We had a conversation about this uh, yesterday, actually, with Doug Lute and Bill Taylor, and we were talking about all what else. my friends. Yeah, when good guys, and but you know what, what, what else could be done? And uh, Doug was, you know, kind of advocating getting, you know, singers and javelins and other kinds of things in there as quickly as we possibly can, recognizing that the west of Ukraine is likely to become the base for long-term insurgency. And, you know, we should try to get as much in as we can before it gets shut down. Bill was talking about some other things, including MLRS systems. And, he, you know, he also mentioned helping the Ukrainians counter Russian efforts to jam radios for, for their Air Force. This is uh, very high on the list, and it's bigger than jamming radios for their Air Force. The Russians are very adept at this electronic warfare game. 
all the way back to 14, if you remember when Crimea was invaded. Mr. Putin and, and his, his team had done, they had corrupted so much of Crimea. Everybody had been bought off, all the utilities bought off, banks bought off, all that stuff bought off. But the four, three really, and a tiny fourth military garrisons in Crimea, they had not been fought off. They were still loyal. And when they flipped the switch and says, we now own Crimea, it was both physical cutting cables, electronic warfare, jamming communications, and electronic warfare capabilities, jamming any military responses that just basically disconnected Crimea from uh, Kyiv. And so they're very good at this. And they have two of their very best jamming capabilities, ground capabilities in Belarus right now, focused on the northern part of the battlefield. And uh, these guys were exactly right. This is very high on the list of things that uh, some groups like Friends of Ukraine Network are pushing to the Congress right now to say electronic warfare is right at the top. You mentioned dissent in Russia, and of course, we've seen a level of dissent that I think surprised probably even Putin. You've got, you had a couple of senior military officers expressed concern about it. You, you had a couple of senior members of parliament do it, sports stars, actors, people demonstrating in the street at significant peril. But one thing we're also starting to see is some hesitation, apparently, and again, reports are spotty, among Russian troops that are in Ukraine. There was a New York Times story about them puncturing their own gas tanks. There have been a number of stories about Ukrainians capturing Russians, and they said, we didn't know this is what we were coming here to do. And fighting a long war against your neighbors without real provocation requires a certain kind of will among the the fighting force. Do you think that's an issue here for Russia? It is. I was on today uh, in a group with uh, ministers from Ukraine, and we all have to agree, no matter whether it's the good side or the bad side, having been a major commander eight times, one of the things I've learned is it's never as good or as bad as you first hear. Okay. And even the good guys, sometimes the fish is bigger when the tail is told than when the fish is caught. And so we need to be careful that we're not spreading false things. But here's what I do see from a lot of sources that I trust. There's a lot of indications that this military was not completely into this action. Now, the regulars, the contract soldiers, those are pretty tough guys, and they're going to stay on track. The conscripts are another story. And even the contract, the professional military folks, as well as the conscripts, a lot of them apparently didn't know what they were going and what they were doing. I mean, Russia's story into the rear today is they're calling this a special military operation. They refuse to use the word war, and they're cutting themselves off from the Internet so that those concepts and ideas are not going to be spread among their people. They're, they're still telling their people that they're going to liberate or exercise or we're going there, we're going to be met with roses and wine, you know, the whole thing. And it's not the case. And 
Some of the morale problems are when you push forward the logistics for a two at the most three-day operation and you're into day seven and your vehicles are all running out of gas and some of them are broke and you haven't eaten well for a while. You've heard the rumor of the one group that was captured in the northeast of Kharkiv. The first thing they asked was, do you have anything to eat? Okay, these are problems. And there's enough of this out there that I believe there's something to it. We need to be careful and not further inaccuracies, but there's enough here that it's pretty clear this wasn't perfectly laid out. One of the narratives about this is that Putin has made a number of miscalculations. He miscalculated about the ability of NATO to provide a unified response, miscalculated about U.S. leadership, miscalculated about Ukraine's ability to push back, miscalculated about the way the world was going to respond to all this. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves a week into this thing with a scenario that's, or a variety of scenarios that are quite unlike the ones that we were discussing 10 days ago. Because there don't seem to be many scenarios that work out very well for Mr. Putin. He can come in, he can take these cities, but holding them is going to be real tough. And he's going to be real tough, David, but horribly expensive. You know, he's already got a stressed economy. The sanctions that have been laid on him now are huge. They're actually pretty good. You heard how I think about sanctions, but these are good sanctions. And then secondarily, he was already, we heard, hemorrhaging money to keep the Donbass alive. Think if he's trying, like you have laid out well, think if he's trying to keep an operation around Kiev that's going to be huge, keep an operation around Kharkiv, and now you see this whole the issue in the South expanding and maybe uh, addressing both Mariupol and, and Odessa, these, the, we haven't even started talking about how much it's going to cost compared to what he was laying out just for the, the Donbass. Right. I mean, and, and people, I've heard all sorts of numbers, but certainly billions and billions of dollars a week. And so the question becomes, is there an off-ramp? And, and I ask that question because, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the view that you just laid out here, which is, I think also the responses in 2008, 2014 left the door open to this. And so we want to get an end to this, particularly if there is the carnage that you describe. But on the other hand, you don't want to get an end to this that invites this again in a few years. Or, David, I would say we don't want to accept the end to this that freezes the current situation. I find it unacceptable to begin to negotiate saying you can have everything you've conquered. Uh, right. And so that becomes a question, you know, what is what is the the end game for this? Is it back to status quo anti prior to this invasion? Is it to, you know, prior to 2014? What degree of neutrality is okay for Ukraine to undertake? And of course they have their own agency here and obviously They have to make their own decisions. But so far, everything that the Russians have laid out is unacceptable. And so the the question becomes, can can you even envision something that they would accept that's acceptable? Or do they have to lose or suffer or pay a lot in terms of blood and treasure for a long time before they'll get to that? 
I don't have any easy answers, but I have some ideas. I think how it ends or how the arrangement of all of the land and who does what to who ends is really predicated by how the the conflict ends. If the conflict ends with Russia in control of a huge part of of Ukraine, and then we enter into a period where that costs Russia a lot in an economy that's crippled by sanctions, and we have an active uh, insurgency slash, I like to use the word resistance going on because it's bigger than an insurgency. If we have an active resistance uh, in effect, that is one way this could end, and it will be a long way before that's resolved, because I think in the long, long term, Russia will end up losing in that instance, because I don't think they can maintain it. But that's a long, uh, let me say it one more time, long time to develop. If this develops whereby Russia's own people rise up and he's got to do something about this. You know, I'm I'm a believer that's what's happening in the streets in Russia right now is a problem for Putin. If you know how the Russian people are, they want a strong man. And I hate to be sexist, but they want a strong man in Russia. And if if Navalny was out and healthy and leading what was going on in the streets right now, I think Mr. Putin's calculus would be very different. But right now it's that movement in the streets is sort of leaderless. And I think Mr. Putin believes he can handle it as long as that's the case. But if if the people rise up and he has to go, that's one ending. If the people rise up and the oligarchs whose money is disappearing at, a, at an exponential rate, one, two, three, five of those guys rise up and get rid of Putin, that's another ending. And in those endings, we might find a Ukraine that moves way back towards the beginning of this conflict. As much as I would love to say it, it's going to be a long time before Crimea is ever going to be resolved. You know, we said that about the three Baltic nations, didn't we? It's going to be a long time till Crimea is resolved. And I don't know that any negotiation at this point would flip-flop the Donbass because there are a lot of very Russian-leaning people in the Donbass, but they've been treated so poorly, they may be ready to turn. The only thing on the table left then is, does this come to some sort of a military conclusion? And that would be, uh, that's a hard thing to think through because Mr. Putin's already threatened his nukes. He's got thermobaric weapons in the country right now and has already sort of intimated that he's going to use them or he's letting that leak out there so that everybody worries about it. Et cetera, et cetera. So that's the cloudiest picture is what happens if we actually go to a conflict that remains conventional. So final question, but taking this next a step further, there is the issue between Ukraine and Russia, but there's also the issue between NATO and Russia. And what does this do to change NATO? Now we've got Finland talking about joining NATO. We have Sweden talking about joining NATO. We have NATO more forward deployed. We have more resolve within NATO. And I think my own personal view is that the response of uh, the leaders within NATO, certainly the response to the Germans was quite surprising. The response of the leadership within the EU and, and Ursula von der Leyen has been pretty robust as well. 
But there are things that Russia might want that we might be willing to do in terms of negotiations, in terms of European security, whether it's getting the INF back on track or it's dealing with tactical nuclear weapons or it's dealing with the nature of deployments along the dividing line. What should we consider? What shouldn't we consider? So I don't know how long you want to keep going, but I would like to back up and and start with a, a first principle issue. So I'm sure you've read the two documents that Mr. Putin wrote us and said, here are my demands, sign them or we'll use other methods. We now understand what that meant, don't we? In those two documents, I think you would agree with me, it's way bigger than Ukraine, what he wants. What he really wants is to rewrite the security architecture of Eastern Europe. He wants to reestablish the border states, get control of those, get his proxy governments in there. And if you want to use old terms, he just wants to rebuild the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And and he's he's basically telling Europe, we're going to do this. Either we're going to do it the easy way or the hard way. And he's showing us the hard way now. If you understand that he's after that, then I think you can better understand what's happening in NATO right now. NATO sees two things. Russia, once again, is using its land force to invade, cross an internationally recognized border, and change the sovereign nature of of a sovereign nation. Okay? That's a big deal. That's how war wars start. So I think you see Mr. Putin telling us, here it is, sign it, or I'm going to show you what else. We didn't sign it. He's showing us what else. That is part of the calculus of rest of Europe. And the other one is, here is how I see Russia or see Europe in the future. And if you don't agree with me, it's other means. And so I'm proud of what NATO has done. People have accused me a long time of being a, a German apologist. I kind of am. I lived there five times in my life. Both of my daughters are born there. And I've served alongside one of the proudest militaries in this world back in the Cold War days. A young captain, Phil Breedlove, came out of his F-16 for a tour to serve with the U.S. Army. And we were right alongside the German Army, the Bundeswehr. And, and I was impressed with them. And I believe that Germany has a huge part to play in the security of Europe, as do the other nations of Europe. And as you said, we now see even the Swiss are re- responding to this. And think of that. And the fact that just uh, three days ago in a poll in Finland, they're now over 50 2%, I think, more than 52% are now pro-NATO, et cetera, et cetera. So I think Mr. Putin has per- wakened the proverbial bear, not his bear. It's going to be different, I think, in Europe for a while. And I don't think this goes away like it did before quickly. Mr. Putin is killing Slavic men and women right now. And in my mind, he's murdering. Slavic men and women right now. That is a big deal. That is a big deal. And I think he's going to pay internally for that. Part of those kids you were talking about that are not wanting to fight and stuff, poking holes in their own gas tanks. Part of that, I think, is they don't want to go attack their brothers and sisters. They do see Ukraine as sort of very close to Russia. And I don't think 
that his people are, are as behind this as he is. And so I think that NATO has changed in ways that will not nearly as quickly fade once this is resolved. And frankly, resolving this, as you and I discussed earlier, could take quite a lot of time. There's going to be animus here for a long time. Yeah, well, I found this conversation extremely valuable, and I I concur with your conclusions. We're real grateful that you could take the time uh, to spend with us and share your expertise. I think it's very helpful to our listeners, and perhaps someday in the not-too-distant future, we'll be able to continue the conversation. I'd love to come back. These are the kind of things I like to do, the the 60-second, 90-second wonder sometimes on the the more conventional programs, you never get to get to the substance. And I appreciate you listening to some of my rambling today. There was no, there was no rambling. And I did enough of those 60 and 90 second things that when we started this, that was the point is that we could do some deep dives and really have the kind of conversations you want to have. Right. So that's, that's what we're doing here. And we're real grateful and we'll be in touch soon. And, and for the audience, I want to thank you for listening. And tomorrow we're going to do another broadcast and we're going to have with us Senator Chris Murphy. So look forward to that as well. And in the meantime, bye-bye, everybody. Thank you.